Louis, I think this is the beginning of a beautiful friendship. Rhodes? Well, we're going, we don't need Rhodes. The greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he didn't exist. No, I am your father. You're listening to After the Ending, the only film podcast where we tell you what happens after the ending of your favorite films. And now, here are your hosts, Mike Spring and Phil Edwards. Hello and welcome to After the Ending. I'm Mike New York Spring. And I'm Phil near Liverpool Edwards. <laughs> near Liverpool? I don't yeah. know if that's quite the same ring as Liverpool, but all right. Yeah, I've got a river Mersey in between me and Liverpool, but you know, it's the closest <laughs> gotcha. city. <laughs> All right, Liverpool or near Liverpool. How are you doing today? I'm glad you asked. I'm doing very well. The sun is shining. It's been a warm day and I've got uh, a damn fine cup of coffee and a martini shaken, not stirred before me. Oh, we got all kinds of pop culture references flying today, don't we? I know, and only some of them are going to be, you know, things we're doing later on in the episode. <laughs> That's right. That's right. <laughs> Uh, well, I think we should start off first. We we do want to just take a second and talk about uh, the late, great Roger Moore, who we just heard this morning as of this recording uh, has passed away at the age of 89. And Phil, I think we've both uh, mentioned on the show more than a few times that, you know, both of us grew up watching Roger Moore as James Bond. So even though he may not be the best James Bond, he certainly ranks as one of our favorites. Is that, yeah, he was, is that accurate? Yeah, he was the first one I saw in Live and Let Die. So he's, you know, you, you never forget your first James Bond Right. Uh, and Roger Moore, he brought, he, he was probably the best one to watch when you were a kid because, you know, there's a more sense of humor. He was a tongue in cheek. His eyebrow was constantly raising. And yeah, he was, he was good. He was, he was cheesy, but he was good and he did wonderful things with, with the role. And also, I, I used to like watching him in the episodes of The Saints and The Persuaders. Not that I was old enough to watch him first time around, but when they repeated them on TV. Right. Very right. good, yeah. Uh, yeah, I, you know, I think, um, you know, people do say he was cheesy as, as James Bond, but I think that speaks to, you know, like you said, the humor of the series, but also a James Bond can often have sort of a cheesy side to it. It's a bit on the fantastical side. Yeah. But I think that also speaks to the era that he was James Bond in. I mean, if you look at it, he was James Bond in the 70s and the 80s. And and what do we know about those decades? There was a lot of cheesy stuff going on at the time. You know, I, I think that people sort of, the, the James Bonds have sort of reflected the eras they're in. You know, Sean Connery was more stripped down and simple in like the 60s. Then, you know, Pierce Brosnan comes in in the 90s and he's all slick and, and you know, dashing and debonair yeah. when, you know, when technology is sort of coming to the forefront. So I think Roger Moore was just kind of the 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 James Bond for the time period that he played James Bond in. That that's a good point. Yeah, the James Bond films are a barometer for our time. Yeah, they kind yeah. of are. You know, yeah, I think they're. I mean, and the latest ones with Dan, with Daniel Craig are very dark and gritty, and I think that certainly is reflective of the world today. So, yeah. you know, I don't think you can hold it against Roger Moore that he happened to be playing James Bond at a time when things in the world were a little bit sillier. You know, true, and he was the only James Bond to go into space. So that's we have, right. Of that as well. That's right. So uh, so anyway, we just wanted to pay a little tribute to Roger Moore. Uh, rest in peace, sir. We're big fans. And uh, thank you for entertaining us for all those years. Hey, but yes, that's uh, sadly he'll be missed. But we do have all his films and things to look back on. Yep. And he was 89. So he lived a good long life. It's not like he, you know, it, he, he was cut off in his prime. Not that, it, of course, it's not sad when somebody dies at any age. But I, I always feel a little bit better when somebody, you know, lives to a ripe old age rather than being cut down in their youth. Yeah, he lived a good life. For sure. For sure. All right. Well, moving on to happier topics. Phil, why don't you tell people what we have in store for them in this episode? Yes. Well, later on, we'll be looking at our top 10 films of 1969 and seeing which of us has seen the most from that year. 
I think we know the answer to that question, Mr. Smarmy Pants. <laughs> and we'll be going after the ending of 1997's LA Confidential and 2009 Zombieland. Yes, and for those of you who might not pick, have picked up on it, that's where our nicknames of New York and near Liverpool came from because the characters in Zombieland don't use names. They just use their hometowns because that way they don't form attachments to each other. So, And uh, I, think, I think it's pretty clear that Phil and I are not attached at all. That sounds weird. <laughs> How can you say that? <laughs> I thought we had so special. <sighs> oh, it's not you, Phil. It's me. I, I just, you know, I just need some space. That's okay, New York. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's keep it that I'll way. Be strong. Near Liverpool. I'll be strong. <laughs> I promised I wouldn't cry. <laughs> All right, so uh, we've got a jam-packed episode. Let's get into things. Why don't we kick off with the zombie land? Yeah, do you want to give us a rundown of some of the events that happened in the film? Sure thing. So Zombieland is a 2009 film directed by Ruben Fleischer. And basically, after a zombie virus sweeps the world, Columbus, played by Jesse Eisenberg, is on his way to see if his parents are still alive. He meets the gruff Tallahassee, played by Woody Harrelson, who misses his dog and his Twinkies. The two of them team up and they meet Wichita, played by Emma Stone, and her younger sister Little Rock, played by Abigail Breslin, in a grocery store. The two girls then con them out of their weapons and their car. Eventually they meet up again and reconcile. Then the whole group heads to California because there's a theme park there that is supposedly zombie-free, and while they're doing it, Columbus develops a crush on Wichita. When they reach Hollywood, they accidentally kill Bill Murray, and Columbus realizes that Tallahassee doesn't miss his dog, but instead his young son, who he had to kill when he turned. Wichita and Little Rock go to the amusement park, but turning on all the rides and the lights attracts a bunch of zombies, and Tallahassee and Columbus show up and help save them. And then Wichita and Columbus finally kiss, and Columbus realizes that he finally has a family. And that is Zombieland. A very nice summation of the film. I did enjoy the film. I thought it was lots of fun. I really love Zombieland, I'll yeah. be honest with you. Uh, I've been watching zombie movies for about 20 years or so, so not as long as some you know, some diehard zombie fans, but definitely since before the sort of current zombie craze, Walking Dead, all that has taken over. So I, you know, I watched a lot of zombie movies back in the 90s and into the 2000s, and so um, I love them. I love classic zombie movies, the George Romero stuff, but when Zombieland came around and just did this brilliant horror comedy, which is such a hard genre to do well anyway, yeah, uh, yeah. I, I just fell in love with it. It really as a movie I'm really good, is just really good casting as well yeah yeah really good group a good ensemble on screen and just really nails the, the comedy and the zombie you know aspects together it, it, it's it's just fantastic well, well how, even the uh, the opening credits are just absolutely oh, brilliant yeah. that so was just, great. When, when that started and the credits some you know zombie smashing through the credits or person coming out the car or on fire and things it just it was just so well done it, it just sucked you get the tone of the film straight away Right, and I think right then I decided that the movie was going to be awesome, and, and it didn't let me down, I'm happy to say. <laughs> yeah, an excellent film. Yeah, if you haven't seen it, it's well worth checking out. Even after that little uh, rundown of what happened, it's still there's so many funny jokes and bits and pieces, yeah. like the zombie kill of the day and all that kind of stuff. Exactly, yeah. exactly. All right, well, Phil, why don't you start us off then and give us your day after. Okay. <clears throat> Uh-oh, are you coming down with a zombie virus? Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> I thought that guy looked a bit funny who bit me on the shoulder when I was walking down the street. <laughs> hey, listen, there's a there's an impression we can add to your list of impressions that are actually good. You you did sound like a zombie there. <laughs> it's just going to be 20 minutes now, maybe now. Going, <laughs> That's your whole after the ending is <laughs> yeah. you do it in zombie speak. <laughs> and then 
(laughs) Okay, the quartet find a safe place to rest and the next day go looking for a new vehicle. Tallahassee has an idea to turn an RV into a zombie-proof transportation unit. So it's a day of shopping, killing zombies and building stuff. The zombie kill of the day involves some fireworks attached to razor wire that takes the heads off five zombies. While they're driving around, the RV's completed, so they head off and while they're driving around, they see a woman on the roof of a building waving to them. She appears to be alive. They stop and after a perilous journey through the building, uh, involving a few more zombie deaths, they find her. She is safe and healthy. Her name is Sue, she's a doctor and she's from New Orleans. New Orleans it is, says Tallahassee, who's quite taken with her. They get back to the RV and head off. They're now a party of five. And that's my day after. All right, very nice. And what have you got for your day after? Okay, well, after the hullabaloo at the theme park, the group returns to Bill Murray's mansion to regroup. They decide that while they can stay at Murray's mansion for a while, they need to find a more long-term solution. Wichita asks Columbus if he doesn't still want to go to Ohio to find his parents, but he tells her that it's too dangerous of a trip and that he, he ultimately doubted that they were still alive anyway. Tallahassee posits that they should go to Alcatraz Island, as they would be safe from zombies there, but they quickly realize that none of them know how to pilot a boat. They then decide to head for Disneyland. They figure that since the park had been closed down when the zombie outbreak started, it wouldn't be filled with thousands of zombie tourists, and since it was all gated off, it would be relatively safe. Plus, there was probably years' worth of non-perishable food and snacks and drinks stored there. On top of all that, they wouldn't get bored. Even if they didn't turn the rides on, they figured there would be enough games and toys and books and such in the gift stores to keep them entertained for a while. So after a few days of preparation, they head out to Anaheim to make their way to the happiest place on earth, or at least the former happiest place on earth. <laughs> That's a good pick, actually, yeah. Went to Disneyland, yeah. yeah. As long as yeah, it was shut, yeah, before the outbreak, yeah, that'd be good. Right, right, exactly. Mm-hmm. Okay. How about your immediate aftermath, then? Okay, immediate aftermath for me. The Armored RV is a success. It helps them get through large groups of zombies and gives them somewhere to sleep if they can't make it to a house at the end of the night. On their travels, they pass a large house in the countryside. They decide to check it out. It's secure and fences all around. Going into search, Tallahassee is grabbed by a large man. New Orleans smacks the man over the head. The man screams and turns around and goes, What are you doing? Dwayne Johnson, cries Wichita. <laughs> it, it is indeed. It is indeed the ex-wrestler and action movie star. He makes them welcome and explains he's been holed up in his ranch since the zombie outbreak. He doesn't really know what's gone on since. The group think that with the rock on their side, nothing can stop them. After a day of good food and drink, they feel relaxed, although Dwayne keeps working out continuously. (laughs) Columbus realises the rock is constantly on the verge of panic. He ends up going for a walk around the ranch with Dwayne, and the actor opens up to Columbus, explaining how he doesn't know how the group copes with the zombie apocalypse. It's, It's just blown his mind. Columbus explains what they've been through, and they stop near some farm equipment, which is involves large spiky things. Suddenly they hear a groaning sound and a zombie appears before them. Dwayne Johnson screams, turns and runs, impaling himself on the sharp farming equipment. (laughs) He turns to Columbus and says, Uh. can you smell something cooking? (laughs) And dies. (laughs) Columbus sees more zombies heading towards them. He runs back to the house and calls for the others. It's time to leave. That is is brilliant. Oh, thank you very much. Maybe one of my favorite ending segments that you've ever done. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) It's all thanks to Dwayne Johnson. Even uh, well, he makes just, everything better. I know he's a charisma machine. Even on the, you know, he's not here. He's just written down on page. He just makes right. everything better. It it comes right through the page. Even <laughs> that's fantastic. Oh, I'm glad you enjoyed it. <laughs> oh, very much. <laughs> okay, what have you got for your immediate aftermath? All right. Well, after several hours of slinking through zombie-infested Los Angeles, the group makes it intact to Disneyland. They scope it out, and it seems deserted, so they hop the fence and make their way inside. 
They do a quick scouting recon and find that the park seems to be deserted. So they take a break for some lunch, mostly potato chips and warm soda, and then they start sweeping the park. It takes two days, but eventually they make their way through every single ride, store, and attraction in the park. There are a few stray zombies, mostly security personnel, who clearly had stayed in the park, although they do have one run-in with a zombified Mickey Mouse. Apparently one of the park characters was bitten while in costume, but it turns out he wasn't much of a threat because he was stuck inside the giant foam Mickey head and couldn't bite anyone. (laughs) After the humor of the situation wore off, they put the poor mouse out of his misery. Finally sure that the park is clear, the gang can finally rest and settle in. And that's my immediate aftermath. Very good. Could you imagine if they got the gut? If Disney said, yeah, you can use it, and they just see shooting <laughs> Mickey Mouse on the head. Right. I just, you know, I, I don't know. I, I like the idea of just this, like, like yeah. shambling giant Mickey Mouse with, like, the big character head just, like, walking into, like, a fence repeatedly but can't actually bite anyone. Oh, you Mickey's know? running at us now. Right. <laughs> right. Awesome. All right. So how about, uh, how about your long term, Phil? Let's hear where this is going. Okay. Well, the group spent months traveling around America. Tallahassee and New Orleans grow close, and Tallahassee becomes more chilled out. They did meet up with another group of survivors who were led by an ex-sheriff and backed up (laughs) with a dirty-looking guy who carried a crossbow and rode a motorcycle. (laughs) However, they soon left them due to the new group being so serious, talking about things and stuff all the time. (laughs) Carl! Yeah, Carl! Are you saying Carl or Carl? I love it. But eventually they find a small farm that is easily defensible. They spend a few days checking out and making it extra secure and decide to stay there for a few months. It becomes their home for the moment. While out on a supply run in a nearby town, Wichita and Columbus are surprised by some zombies. They quickly kill the walkers, but turn to see another one approaching. They raise their guns, and the zombie stops and raises its arms. Wichita and Columbus pause, puzzled. Don't shoot, the zombie groans. Did you just speak? asks Columbus. Yes, comes the reply. I'm not like the others. Well, this changes everything, says Wichita. And that's my long term. Wow, I like that. A little bit of a change in the zombie paradigm, if you will. Yes, suddenly if the zombies can talk and think, do you want to kill them still? Right. Special bonus, if this podcast runs for 40 years, now I know what you'll sound like at the end of that. What was that, that, Mike? What did you say? You you sound like old Phil. (laughs) Yes, I got in the way back machine and it took me too far. (laughs) Went the wrong way. Okay, but what have you got for your long term? I uh, I didn't even think to cross over at The Walking Dead. Now I'm disappointed, but I'll I'll do the best. But I could just imagine the group from uh, Zombieland meeting up with them and then just going, okay, we've got a good chance of surviving with them, but they're so serious. Right, I'm just going to, yeah, exactly. Like, oh, my God. Be like, dude, lighten up a little bit. You know what? You know, the zombies are no longer attacking you. You just, you've got to watch out for all the humans all the time. Right. Yeah. Yeah, stop falling in with, you know, going to human towns because they're all bad. Yeah, yeah. Okay, though, so what's your long term? All right, well, it's a year later. Wichita and Columbus are in a full-on relationship now. Tallahassee has developed something of a father-daughter bond with Little Rock, which helps him heal the pain over the death of his young son. The group is happy, or at least as happy as you can be while living in a deserted theme park during a zombie apocalypse. (laughs) When Columbus proposes to Wichita, she agrees to marry him, and they get married in a ceremony in front of Cinderella's castle, which Tallahassee officiates. A few months later, Wichita realizes that she's pregnant. Suddenly, the mood in the park changes. While they've been safe for the last year or so, she realizes that this isn't the kind of place to raise a baby. While they haven't heard of any human survivors, they devise a plan. They're going to head to Washington, D.C. and see if any part of human civilization has survived. And if not, then they're going to head down to the Florida Keys and see if they can make it to a tropical island where they can live in safety while also living in a better environment than a deteriorating theme park. 
They spend a few days preparing supplies, weapons, and food, and then one morning, the four of them open the gates of Disneyland, take a collective deep breath, and head off to an uncertain but hopeful future. Nice. And that's the end, yeah. Yeah, Leaving it open for that third film in the franchise. Yeah, yeah. Much like you did. Has there ever been a zombie film set in Florida? Uh, Wasn't um, Day of the Dead set down there? The original Romero, the third one? Oh, yeah, yeah. It might have been, yeah. I mean, they didn't do theme parks or anything, but I think it was set in an army base down down in the Yeah, I think it was around about that way, wasn't it? Yeah. Oh, no, but. no, but I like, uh, I like yours. It was very good. Thanks. Thanks. I would love to see, like, a zombie movie set in a theme park, though. I think that would be really cool. Yeah, full-on one, yeah. But, uh, yeah. I mean, there's there's always talk of a Zombieland sequel. I know they did the t- pilot. For, Amazon did a pilot for the TV show. Right. Which didn't yeah. do very well. No, it didn't get voted into becoming a regular series. Yeah. So, um, Which I actually never even saw it, so I, I don't know if that's a good thing. I, I watched thing. it. It wasn't dreadful. I mean, it had – it was – it was it – was, Perfectly serviceable. It was nothing special, but it wasn't dreadful. Right. And it did have some decent zombie things. And Oh, well, you win some, you lose some. Maybe someday yeah. they'll do. Listen, if they don't do a sequel to it, you know it will happen. Another five or six years, they'll just do a reboot of it. So Yeah, that's true. But these kind of, I mean, the zombie films, you can always look at zombie films all being set in the same particular universe anyway. So Right, right, exactly. Cool. Well, Phil, why don't you take us to Trivia Land? Okay, well, the trivia for Zombieland, we just mentioned... The film itself was originally a TV pilot. Well, it was going to be a TV pilot, but they uh, they worked it for the movie. And the Zombie Killer of the Week was a leftover from the original pilot. It was shot in 42 days. John Carpenter apparently turned down a chance to direct. And even though I'm a huge fan of John Carpenter, I think that was probably for the best because I don't think it would have been quite as... I don't know. Yeah, I know what you were saying. He's yeah. got a he's got a sense of humor, but it's a different kind of sense yeah, of humor. Yeah, I, I think the sense of humor for this the particular film worked well as it is. Exactly. Uh, Natural Born Killers... That Woody Harrelson starred in in 1994 has a mention of Zombieland, but in that aspect, they're talking about TV audiences. Yeah, cool. Uh, Woody Harrelson tells Bill Murray in the film that he's a fan of all of Bill Murray's films, and Harrelson starred in Kingpin alongside Bill Murray, so it's a bit of a you know a little pat on the back for him. Right. Uh, zombie cameo roles were offered to Patrick Swayze, Joe Pesky, Mark Hamill, Dwayne Johnson, Kevin Bacon, Jean Claude Van Damme, and Matthew McConaughey, but uh, none of them took it. Um, let's see, and all four leads as of 2015, had been nominated for Academy Awards. Emma Stone is the only one to win so far for La La Land. But do you want to take a guess at what the other they were all nominated for by 2015? Well, let's see. Jesse Eisenberg was nominated for The Social Network. Yeah, in 2011, yeah. Woody Harrelson, I believe, was for Rampart? Nope. It was, it was the other film by Oren Moverman then. No, it was... Uh, uh, ni- oh, wait, might wait, 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 wait. Was it Natural Born Killers? No, no. It was... Do you want to know? Yeah, go ahead. 1997's The People versus Larry Flynn. That's it. I knew yes. that. And Abigail Breslin was for Little Miss Sunshine? That's correct, from 2007. Nice. And Emma Stone had been nominated for one before La La Land. Yes, she was nominated for... Not too long ago. Yeah, it was... Um... Oh, I know it. I'm just blanking on her movies now. Okay, it was 2015's Birdman. That's it, Birdman. Okay. But that's, uh, that's Zombieland. All right, very cool. Okay, well, let's move on then to uh, a different kind of zombie land, Los Angeles. And uh, a <laughs> <laughs> <Very> bump. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, let's uh, talk about L.A. Confidential. Phil, why don't you go ahead and give us that? This is a complicated movie, so I'll be very curious to see how you've boiled this down to anything less than about 10 minutes. Yeah. It's, uh, okay, 1997's L.A. Confidential, directed by Curtis Hansen and based on a James Elroy novel. It's a load of cops in 1950s LA investigating stuff. There you go. That works for me. I'm okay <laughs> no, with that. <laughs> no, we've got a, we, I have tried it because it was very – when I saw – you know, went over the pot again, I went, oh, no. 
But uh, it's uh, it's three, mainly three cops. Sergeant Ed Exley, played by Guy Pearce. Officer Bud White, played by Russell Crowe. And Sergeant Jack Vincennes, played by Kevin Spacey. They all investigate a series of murders. And Vincennes, also on the side, gives tips about celebrity scandal to the editor of Hush Hush magazine. Vincennes' investigation leads him to police captain Dudley Smith, played by James, Conmer, James Cromwell, who ends up killing Vincennes. However, Vincennes' dying words of Rolo Tomasi tips off Exley about Smith being corrupt because Exley's dad was killed and this Rolo Tomasi was a made-up name uh, Guy Pearce's character had given to this killer so only Vincennes and Exley knew about it. Uh, Exley and White discover that Smith is trying to take over a heroin network so Exley and White track him down they have a gunfight with Smith and his men Smith shoots White and Exley kills Smith the LAPD end up covering up Smith's crimes and say he died a hero in the shootout to protect the department's image in exchange for his silence on this, Exley bargains to be hailed a hero and receives a medal for his bravery. White survived the, uh, the shot to the face and leaves Los Angeles with Lynn Bracken, played by Kim Basinger, who's the character she plays as a Veronica Lake lookalike and a former prostitute. And that's Ellie Confidential. Probably doesn't make much sense, but it's all a very noirish, very good kind of film. Yeah, it's yeah. I mean, that was a nice job actually of recapping kind of the the major points. But it is certainly a very layered, complicated film. It is absolutely brilliant. It's one of my favorite movies. Oh, it's, uh, it's every, I, I watch it every few years, and I I love that it's one of those films. I generally forget everything about it. Yeah, me too. I, I know what you, you know, mean. Yeah. In between viewings, I think because there's so much happening that, and, and so yeah. every time it starts over, I'm always like, wait, what's going on? Why are these people doing this? Who did what? And then you as you get into it, and you know, it's like watching a new movie every time. But yeah. I really, really love it. It was nominated for a bunch of awards, but wasn't a big box office hit. Uh, it has certainly gained some following, much like Shawshank Redemption, which came out the same year. And uh, it, you know, it's just really, really fantastic. Uh, I, still one of those movies I think a lot of people haven't seen. So if you haven't watched it yet, do yourself a favor, track it down, put it on, turn off your phone, and just immerse yourself in this world for a couple hours because it really is a brilliant film. Oh, definitely. I yeah. highly recommend it. It just—it's—it's it's so sumptuous as well. They got the, the way they got everything set and it's—it's it's lit and. But it, although they deliberately didn't want to make it light, it like a prop, uh, a typical film noir. They wanted to have like a modern sensibility with the way that was the, the film was shot and and the lit and things. But they, they made sure everything looked like it was set in the fifties. But the way it was filmed was they made sure it was like a modern day kind of film into it. And I think that works quite well. The juxtaposition of the two. Agreed. Okay, so that's uh, that was the rundown. What have you got for your day after? All right, well, Exley is a changed man. He still fights for truth and justice, but he's come to realize that being 100% dedicated to rules and propriety is a quick way to get swallowed up by the corrupt forces that run Los Angeles. He ignores cops that are on the take. He occasionally lets criminals slide on minor infractions in exchange for information that leads to bigger arrests, and he generally learns how to play the game. Meanwhile, Bud and Lynn Bracken return to Arizona and settle down. Bud recovers from his wounds slowly, and Lynn takes care of him. They're able to live off of Bud's disability and retirement money, and they buy a small house and become quite happy together. But it isn't long before Bud begins to get restless. It's not in his nature to just be a stay-at-home husband, so he gets antsy. He begins to look into options for a new career. And that is my day after. Very nice. Oh, no, this is going to go. Uh, well, we'll see. Hopefully mm. somewhere interesting, yeah, <laughs> if okay. I've done my job right. I'm sure it will. All right. How about your day after? Okay, Bud and Bracken head off into the sunset and have a good life together. Their story is told. Exley, meanwhile, throws himself into his work, but he does try to not be as uptight as he had been and chill out a bit. But uh, it's going to be a long road until people see him that way. There's a grudging respect, though, from his fellow officers, but they still keep him at arm's length. Exley feels lonely, but that's nothing new. However, with his newfound fame, he puts together a proposition for a new police task force 
to look into unsolved murders and gang connections. Eventually, it gets the go-ahead. That's my day after. Hmm, interesting. Intriguing, even. See how it plays out. Right. Got to keep it on the hush-hush on the down low. That's right. (laughs) Okay, what have you got for your immediate aftermath? All right. Well, a year later, things have changed. Bud has opened up a private detective agency in Phoenix, Arizona. He mostly does small cases such as following cheating husbands and such, but it keeps him happy. He's able to make a difference in the world, the work isn't too taxing, and he and Lynn are happy. Meanwhile, in Los Angeles, Exley has become a police captain. He runs the department with efficiency and has slowly won over the rank-and-file officers. He rewards them when they do well, and he admonishes them when they screw up, but he's fair and the men grow to respect him. He slowly begins to clean up the department's corruption. When a prostitution ring snares the lieutenant governor of California, it doesn't take long for Exley to realize that something bigger is going on. As he takes the case on under his own purview, he begins to realize that the trail of evidence goes all the way up to the president of the United States. Holy crap, I didn't see that one coming. (laughs) Wow, okay. Yeah, big stuff happening here. Wow. Yeah. All right, how about your immediate aftermath? Okay, well, time goes by and Exley keeps on working. He's now a lieutenant and has helped solve a number of high-profile murder cases. Yet he has an ongoing file of unsolved murders. Many of them seem to be suicides, but he feels there's something more to them. The rest of the departments have taken to calling them Exley's X-Files. <laughs> then, during the summer of 1959, one of Exley's sergeants comes running in. Sir, we just heard that Superman's died. And that's my immediate aftermath. Oh, okay. Interesting. I did not... Uh, hmm. No, okay. <laughs> I'm going to reserve any comments until I see exactly where you're going with that. That's okay. What have you got then for your long term? Okay. What's, happened? What's the president been up to? Well, we're going to find out, I guess. Not the current president, the president back in the 1950s, <laughs> right. the fictitious one in the film. Right. Well, five years later, Bud and Lynn stand proudly in the front row of the inauguration ceremony as Exley is sworn in as president of the United States. What the what? <laughs> Ever since Exley discovered that the California governor and the U.S. president were involved in a prostitution and human trafficking ring and exposed them, his rise in politics has been swift. But he couldn't have done it without Bud, who was able to work outside the system and gather evidence in a way no one else could. The experience bonded the two, and they became best friends. Exley made enemies along the way, but he's also extremely popular with the American people. Young, handsome, seen out on the town with movie stars, he wins the U.S. vote by a landslide. He's even more popular as president, and he starts to make some real changes for our country. It's about three years into his presidency when he gets into a convertible car in a motorcade in Dallas, Texas. Oh, no. And that's the end. Oh, yeah, good ending. I like that. Thanks. But little, if, it's, uh, if, it's, if it's changing, he's the president. It doesn't necessarily mean it's going to go that way in Dallas. Little, little, you know, if you add a little, like, Twilighty Zone music to it, then I yeah, think it'll yeah. kind of sell it a little bit more, more. Very good. Thanks. All right, well, let's hear what you've got then. Bring us home with your long term. Okay, the investigation into the death of Superman, well, the actor George Reeves, anyway, had been ruled a suicide. Aha, I see. Although some thought it had been done by Tony Mannix, a Hollywood fixer. Axley felt he was missing something else, but there was no proof. The case went into the X-Files. Time ticked by, then in 1962, Axley was called out to Brentwood. Marilyn Monroe had died. Again, the case was ruled a suicide, but something about it didn't add up. Axley took a few days off and took a long look at the X-Files. Almost ready to give up, he made a few more inquiries and found a very slight connection. A reporter by the name of Jack Ryder was always one of the first on the scenes. Calling in some favours, Exley discovered Ryder was ex-military and had been involved in some experiments involving LSD and mind control. Exley called in on Ryder and said he was just making general inquiries about the Monroe case. Exley left finding Ryder most agreeable and likeable. He has to be the connection, thought Exley. 
that night as he poured himself a bourbon. His phone rang. Answering it, he heard a cackling laugh followed by a strange twisted voice. The creeper's coming to get you! And that's my long term. Wow, okay. <laughs> yes. It was Jack Ryder, the creeper from DC Comics. Oh, good lord. Yes, that's right. I knew it sounded vaguely familiar, but I couldn't... I uh... thought I'd just spin it a bit because I always like that kind of character. He's not necessarily a villain, but uh, I just thought right. it'd be a good thing to have. All right. Very cool. So there's this, he's going around killing all the celebrities in a weird kind of twisted way. I got you. I like that. Yeah, I like that. I like the, the connection there between the celebrities. Well, it was when I saw the death of Superman was in the 50s. I thought, well, maybe I have some kind of comic book connection, but not sure, something that's sure. too superhero-ish. I, I dig it. Thank you very much. All right. Well, let's see. Do you have any trivia confidential for us? Yes, and I might even have a little other testing one for you, like we did in the last one. But many of the events in the film were based on real events that happened back in the day. Right. Uh, Kim Basinger was won Best Supporting Actress Oscar for her role. Uh, the film used 45 different locations and had 80 speaking parts, so it's quite a big production. Right. It had originally been pitched as a TV series, and it was being developed as a show on HBO. A pilot starring Kiefer Sutherland was produced, but it wasn't picked up. Huh. Kevin Sp- I didn't know. I know that would have been interesting to see what they yeah. would have done with it. Okay, but a number of actors in the film have been in film adaptations of DC Comics' most famous characters, Batman and Superman. Oh, well, actually, no, it's not so much. Uh, most of them have been in DC Comics, Batman films involving Batman and Superman, but there's also been maybe one or two in Marvel movies as well. Okay, let's see. So, Russell Crowe was in Man of Steel, obviously. Yes. Uh, Kim Basinger was in the original Batman from 1989. Mm-hmm. Kevin Spacey played Lex Luthor in Brian yes. Singer's Superman. I'm having trouble with Guy Pierce though, and I feel like yeah, he's not DC; he's a Marvel one. Yeah, he was in he was in um, Iron Man three. That's correct. Yes, and also bonus points. Uh, what was the the guy who played the editor of Hush Hush magazine? He was Danny also Danny DeVito. In- Yes. Danny DeVito was in Batman Returns. Yes, you got them all right. Ding, all ding. Right. All points for you. But that's quite nice. interesting, isn't it? All the main character, the main actors in the film. Yeah, we're in, we're in superhero movies. Yeah. Huh, cool. But that's uh, that's LA Confidential. Very nice. All right. Well, those are our endings for Zombieland and LA Confidential, both excellent movies that I highly recommend. Uh, meanwhile, let's move on then to our 100 years of Hollywood in 100 episodes, wherein Phil and I take a year from the past century of Hollywood and share our top 10 favorite films. Phil, why don't you climb into your Wayback Machine, your time machine, and tell us what the world was like in 1969. It was the summer of 69. That'd make a good song, I think. Yeah. Hmm. Somebody should do that. That's like a ballad, a really slow one. Yeah, yeah, (laughs) definitely. (laughs) Okay, I'll get back into the Wayback Machine. Yes, I'm back again. Uh, 1969, the British Prime Minister was Harold Wilson. Uh, Meanwhile, in the US, the presidency went from Lyndon B. Johnson to Richard Nixon. I'm sure it ended up well for Nixon. Uh, the Soviet Union launched the Venera probes towards Venus. Led Zeppelin's first album, Led Zeppelin, was released in America. Yay. The Beatles gave their last public performance on the roof of Apple Records. The Boeing 747 took its maiden flight. And in France, the first Concorde test flight took place. The Godfather novel by Mario Puzo was published. Uh, Jim Morrison is arrested in Florida for indecent exposure at a Doors concert. John Lennon and Yoko Ono were married in Gibraltar. A U.S. teenager known as Robert R. died in Missouri of a baffling condition. And fast forward to 1984, it will be identified as the first confirmed case of HIV AIDS in the U.S. So oh, I didn't know. I didn't know that. Yeah, I didn't know it that far back. No, me neither. I was amazed for that. But Apollo 11 lands on the moon, and Neil Armstrong took his historic first steps and said, "Wow, this is amazing! I'm on the blooming moon." <laughs> Uh, I believe that's what he said. Something something almost as profound as that, I think. Yeah. yeah. It might have been, what the hell? <laughs> uh, 
followers Wee, of Tom. I can fly. Yeah. Look at this, I'm jumping, ma. <laughs> I can see my house from here. Yeah. Uh, the f- yeah. I can see everything. <laughs> I can see my planet from yeah. here. Yeah. How'd you like me now? <laughs> uh, top the- of the world, ma. Yeah, I'd see you top of the world. <laughs> So many things he could have said when he landed on the moon. And he goes and says that. You know, right. <laughs> uh, the followers of Charles Manson murdered Sharon Tate and her friends, so that wasn't a, a good day. The Woodstock Festival took place, and Scooby-Doo and Sesame Street aired their first episodes. And we had lots of famous people born. This was a good year for talent being born. Um, well, some of them anyway. It depends what you think of them. Uh, Dave Grohl, Patton Oswalt, Jennifer Aniston, Dave Batista, Michael Sheen. Javier Barden, Terence Howard, Thomas Jane, Paul Rudd, Toby Stevens, Wes Anderson, Kate Blanchett, Peter Dinklage, Ice Cube, Jennifer Lopez, Edward Norton, Jack Black, Tyler Perry, Zach Galifianakis, Trey Parker, Matthew McConaughey, Gerard Butler, Jay-Z, and Simon Baker, the guy who plays the mentalist, who also had his uh, film debut in Ali Confidential. Yes, yes, he did. So, and we saw the passing of Boris Karloff and Judy Garland. Hmm. All right. Well, a lot of good talent born that year. Yes. Oh, and it was also the film debut of Al Pacino. Oh, very cool. Okay. So that was the t- that was what happened in 1969. There was an awful lot of good classic movies, some brilliant ones. I've seen some of them. Mike's seen some of them. I've seen almost none of them. <laughs> Turns out, for some reason, there's a lot of really big movies from 1969 that are all on my, hey, I need to watch that list. Uh, and I haven't really seen very many from this year at all, which is uh, which is unusual. Because most everything after like the 40s on, I've always seen at least 10 films. But 1969, uh, not my strongest year is all I'm going to say. So if to- it's, it's, it's bound to happen. There's always going to be some films that slip by and it's... The law of averages, it's gonna, some of them are going to be in like the same, yeah. Right, exactly. So the first five on my list are movies that I want to see, uh, and then the top five are ones I've actually seen. Okay, I do reserve the right, though, maybe on some of the films that you haven't seen to go, ha! Yeah, well, I think this first one is going to be a great candidate for it. So my number 10 is Easy Rider. Ha! Yeah. <laughs> I've never seen Easy Rider. Uh, and part of the reason for that is I just don't really want to. Like, <laughs> I know I know it's this classic, this counterculture classic, and I know it, like, launched this, like, movement, and it's this really famous, popular film. But it's Jack Nicholson, who I hate, and it's two guys on motorcycles, which is not a scene I'm really into. And I feel like it's much less of a film than it is, like, I don't know, a counterculture brochure. Yeah, it's all about the journey. Yeah, and so you know, I want to see it just because I know it's the seminal film that everyone's seen, and I should have seen it. But it's one of those ones I I really just never feel like watching it. So I, it's on my list as a film I want to see for importance reasons. But honestly, my desire to watch it is is pretty low. Fair enough. But I think the thing is as well from the films from the lots of films from the late late sixties and early seventies are also depressing as hell. Yeah. Well, I mean, I've it, I've made it very vocal that I I. I don't love 70s cinema, and I know it's regarded as this golden age of Hollywood, but the films are mostly three hours long and really depressing, which is just not my thing. So this is – even though this is 69, it's clearly getting into the that kind of 70s style of filmmaking for me, and I think that's why there's a lot of films yeah. on, on, from this year that I just haven't gotten around to yet. I can understand, though, why you feel that way. I'm sure there's lots of people like like feel like that way about certain films. My number 10, though, is a Western fantasy, you know, cowboys and dinosaurs uh, with some <laughs> – Creature Effects by Ray Harryhausen. It is The Valley of Gwangi. Almost made my list, but I couldn't remember if I'd actually seen it or not. Oh, well, it's it. I mean, it's not the best film, but it's got some cool stop motion animation and it's got cowboys and dinosaurs. I remember seeing it. It was, I think uh, I was around at my nan's. She must have been babysitting, 
babysitting me and uh, I hadn't seen it from the beginning but it was these I just saw these cowboys riding into you know in this desert environment and suddenly there was a dinosaur and they were trying to lasso it and it blew my mind as a kid I was going oh my god so it sucked me in uh, and I've loved it every time I've seen it I watched it a few years back with my daughter Hannah and she uh, it was again it was the same thing this it was going oh, what's this it's a bit boring cowboys oh my god but there's a dinosaur wow <laughs> and it's that's why it's my number 10 because it's cowboys and dinosaurs and yep. it's Ray Harryhausen and it's uh, it's lots of fun yeah, it it seems like one of those movies that I saw when I was a kid, and I, I kind of wanted to put it on my list, but I just couldn't remember if I'd actually seen it or not, so I, I left it off. All right, well, my number nine is, an, is a Western without dinosaurs. Uh, well, although you could say the lead actor was a bit of a dinosaur. It is John Wayne in True Grit. Huh? <laughs> I've seen the remake that the Coen brothers did. I liked it quite a bit. I am a big John Wayne fan, uh, and I've seen many of his movies, but this is just one that I, I haven't gotten around to. I own it, but I haven't watched yeah, it yet, yeah. so that's my number nine. Uh, to be honest, I mean, uh, I liked I liked the original True Grit. Uh, True Grit. It didn't make my list, but I I, I preferred the Coen Brothers version. To be honest, fair enough. But uh, my number nine is a it's a satirical comedy directed by Robert Downey Jr.'s dad. Uh, his name is Robert Downey Senior. Yeah, there for those, you go. You know, playing catch up. <laughs> uh, it's uh, one called Putney Swope, and stars Arnold Johnson as Swope, and it's basically a comedy uh, satirizing the advertising world. And it's uh, Putney Swope's the black man on the the only black man on the executive board of an advertising firm, and he's accidentally put in charge after the the chairman dies, and it's put to a ballot, and everybody else you can't vote for yourself, so everybody else votes for somebody they think nobody else will vote for, and they all end up voting for Putney Swope, and then it's uh, he gets gets there, he renames the business, basically he says we're not going to accept business from alcohol, war toys, or tobacco, and it's the government get involved, and it's uh, it's it's another one, it's it's a hard one to watch in places, but it's it's, it's it's a good satire, and they have these different adverts. It's all in black and white, apart from the adverts that the company makes, which are, you know, spoofing products, and some of them are really cool, some of them are funny, and things like that. But it's it's an interesting one to watch. That sounds good. I've heard of it, haven't haven't seen it. The, the really a kind of a theme for this list for me is, like I said, a lot of big movies in this year, and even some of the not as big but still popular. I'm familiar with a lot of movies on, yeah, on yeah, yeah. from this year, and I just haven't gotten around to them yet. Uh, all right, well, my number eight though is a film by one of my favorite filmmakers of all time. It is Alfred Hitchcock's Topaz. Uh, doesn't really have any real big names. It wasn't one of his more famous films. It was towards the end of his career. Uh, I have several Hitchcock box sets that I'm working my way through, uh, but I'm watching them chronologically. And since Topaz is towards the end, I just haven't made my way to it yet. Yeah, I couldn't remember what I'd seen. I know I've got it in a box set. and I'm, I think I've seen it years ago, but I couldn't remember enough about it. Yeah, it's one I need to check out. Okay, my number eight is a film by Sidney Pollock, and it stars Jane Fonda, Michael Sarazen, Susanna York. Bruce Dern, Bonnie Bedelia, and Gig Young, and it's they shoot horses, don't they? And it's basically all about a group of characters doing a Depression era dance marathon on the MC. And it's uh, it's one of those ones. It's it's quite depressing. It's these characters though trying to do this to get some money because nobody's got money. And it's as if you stop dancing, you're you're out. You're just following these these characters. It's conversations. It's going on, and it goes. It goes on for weeks and people die of heart attacks and things like this and people dying in each other's arms and say it's an, it's a bleak one. It's about these it's showing, you know, when people have got nothing the lens will go to to get something. But it's it's supremely well done. Uh, it's just it's it's worth checking out, but uh, it's not a happy one. So you've got to be in the right frame of mind. Fair enough. Another movie I've heard of but haven't seen. All right. Well, my number seven is a film I'm going to say very little about because if I know you and I think I do, it's going to be on your list still. And it is the original version of The Italian Job starring Michael Caine. 
I like the remake. Never seen the original. I really need to. It's on a lot of people's favorite movies lists. I understand it's quite good. So I'm going to track that down, and that's all I'm going to say about that. Yeah, it's all right. It might turn a plate on my list. <laughs> yeah, we'll see. Okay. <laughs> uh, my number seven is Midnight Cowboy, directed by John Schlesinger and stars John Voight and Dustin Hoffman, about a young Texan who heads to New York and becomes a male gigolo or prostitute, and he gets mixed up with uh, Dustin Hoffman's con man. Again, it's another one. It's They're not the happiest of films, but it's great acting by both Voight and Hoffman. It's the classic, you know, I'm walking here, I'm walking here, all that stuff. It's sad and it's funny, and then it's sad again. And it's just, well, a great script, well acted, and it's it's a classic, and it's uh, it's another one that you should see if you're into films. Yeah, that's definitely got like 70s cinema written all over it, even though I know it came out in 69. Yeah, it's one of yeah. those movies that's, you know, long and dark and depressing, and I, I haven't seen it yet. This this is one of them. If you're in the right mood, it's perfect, but if not, right, right. Yeah, go into something happier. All right. Well, my number six is a film called The Computer Wore Tennis Shoes. And it I had stars... a feeling this would be on your list. It's yeah. almost made my list. To be honest, yeah. But yeah. Oh, I haven't seen it, but I want to. It's a young Kurt Russell. Uh, he plays a, a you know a, a college student. He gets kind of zapped by a computer and begins to remember everything he reads. And also that leads to uh, him figuring out some stuff about some shady dealings with the people that he's trying to work with. Uh, it just sounds like kind of a fun. It's a Disney movie, a, you know, Buena Vista Pictures. Uh, it's a very young Kurt Russell. I haven't really seen too much of him in his young young actor days uh and it just sounds like kind of a like a fun you know very classic 60s live action disney movie so uh, i want to check it out yeah i mean I, I saw that a long time ago but i remember enjoying it and it's it's funny people you know you talk about child actors not many make them but kurt russell certainly oh yeah he certainly made it through the child <laughs> actor thing didn't he exactly it's amazing how many films he did as a kid oh he did a lot more than you think yeah. and that's why i've never really seen many of them so this one seems like you know it's not quite kid i mean he is a college age but it's still yeah. young enough that i would i'd like to see it you know he's still kind of a little a little re- less recognizable as kurt russell than you're used to seeing him yeah but uh, no, a good a good choice uh okay my number six is one you've mentioned it's easy rider and i totally agree with you it's basically a long journey and dennis hopper directed it and it's yeah these two guys head off into america and they see the best and the worst of america take a load of drugs drink a load of booze drive along meet up with uh, jack nicholson's lawyer uh, some great dialogue some great scenes uh, lots of cool shots of people riding around on motorbikes i can see why lots of people don't like it but i can see why lots of people love it i'm sort of in the middle i think it's a really good film but that's why it's my number six Yep, sounds riveting. <laughs> yeah, driving around motorcycles doing a bunch of drugs, and they meet up with his lawyer. Okay, yeah, sign me yeah, up. Yeah, it's, it's an alcoholic <laughs> lawyer. Right. But no, I'm sure it's a good film. Like I said, it's just one of those things I have to really get into the mood to watch. Yeah, yeah. Uh, my number five is the biggest cheat on my list, but I'm going to stand by it as being valid because it is Bambi meets Godzilla. Oh, yeah, I saw this on the list. I, yes. I knew nothing about this one. It, so Bambi Meets Godzilla is a, a short animated film. And when I say short, I mean short. It's about four seconds long. And basically, it's just like some like a kind of crude animation of uh, of a deer in the forest. And then the next thing you see, this giant green foot just stomps on it. And that's it. That's Bambi <laughs> Meets Godzilla. Now, the reason I included this, it's it's a funny gag. And it's easily, like it's it. it's easy to find on the internet. The reason I included this, though, is it's one of the first things I ever saw on the internet when it got to the point where you could start to watch videos and stuff like that. Yeah. So to me, even though it was made in 1969, Bambi Meets Godzilla is very sort of uh, representative of kind of what the internet became. Because back in, you know, like the, the early 2000s or the late 90s, when you were to be able to start to get the sites that were more than just text and things like that, yeah. this was one of those things that floated around everywhere. 
everywhere. And, and it was, you know, with the type of thing that everybody would like, you know, before you were even emailing and texting people, you would just tell people like, have you seen Bambi meets Godzilla yet? It's so funny. And you'd pull it up and show your friends. It would take like seven hours to load on your computer. And then it was four seconds long, you know. Um, but to me, it was sort of like this. So it's from the counterculture era, but it's sort of I link it to the Internet era. Hold on. Oh, no, it is. Yeah, I've just seen it. <laughs> <laughs> right. Exactly. <laughs> it's a lot of fun. Fantastic. That's my number five. No, I stand by a, it. A, a good pick. No, definitely. You, you wouldn't realize it was that old, to be honest. Yeah, I mean, I really thought it was something that came about with the advent of the internet. I didn't realize yeah. that it was from 1969, but because of that, it's you know, it makes the list. But I, I do think it's like I said, something that I, I kind of uh, uh, you know have very strong memories associating with a particular time period, even if it wasn't the period it was created in. Oh, fantastic! A good pick. Thanks. Uh, and a little bit off the wall as well, which I like. Yeah, I try. Okay, yeah, my number five is Where Eagles Dare, which premiered in London in 1969. It's a World War II action film starring Richard Burton and Clint Eastwood, and it's uh, a good bit of World War II action. It's a team of Allied commandos all have to get parachute into Bavaria, get into this castle, which is up a mountain, and rescue uh, a general before the Germans can interrogate him. And it's, well, it's got Richard Burton and Clint Eastwood together, and they're doing amazing things. They've got a and it's just tense, and they've got to they get in with the locals who've helped them get up there, and they've got to go in disguises. And as you know, Clint Eastwood disguised as a German, and it's tense. If you haven't seen it, and you want someone to watch on a Sunday afternoon after you've had your lunch, whack this one on and just just revel in the World War Two action. Very cool. Well, I will. This won't be a big surprise, but I haven't seen it. All right. Well, my number four is a film that is very similar to that, and it is a boy named Charlie Brown, which is also a World War Two. Yeah, I, can, <laughs> I, I always remember watching where Eagles there. It was I've said, this is pure Charlie Brown. <laughs> right, exactly. They totally ripped this movie off from yeah, Charlie Brown. I can't believe it. Um, Why is she holding the ball and he's run up to kick it? <laughs> right. You know, it's funny about this. I didn't realize it was actually a theatrical film originally. So I wasn't going to include it on my list at first, but it turns out that it was. It grossed something like $12 million, which is a pretty big sum for back in 1969. Gosh, yeah, that's um, huge. Yeah, and I always thought it was just one of the TV specials, but it turns out I think the first two TV specials, this and Snoopy Come Home, were actually theatrical releases. And I always loved the the peanuts cartoons as a kid i still i still love peanuts um so i was happy to add a boy named charlie brown to my list it's uh, it's a great little flick um and even though it's now mostly seen on television at one time apparently you could go see it in theaters so thought that was pretty cool but i know an excellent choice always good to get a bit of animated goodness on the list right okay my number four is a sam peckinpah movie the wild bunch about an aging outlaw gang on the texas mexico border and the world is it's changing around them and they're from another era. It's bad men doing bad things but trying to survive amongst other bad men and a world which is no longer suited for them. But it's Sam Peckinpah, so it's, it's you know, raw dialogue. It's people getting shot and then getting shot again, drinking. Yeah, lots of badness, but it's... It's amazing. You get these. It's just got some amazing iconic scenes, which you've probably been, you've probably seen in other films, which because it's referencing it, but you haven't quite realised if you haven't seen the Wild Bunch. But as I've said all throughout this, it's another one you really must see. Certain films you should really see them. If you're a fan of film, you should really see them just so you know what the director was like and what the actors were good and what they did, you know, later in life, things like that. And this is one of them. Yeah, definitely. It's one that I've been meaning to see, but surprisingly, I know <laughs> I haven't gotten around well, to well, it. Well, I did. I only saw it about probably about six or seven years ago for the first time. Right. So it took, it did take a while because I was sort of going, well, I don't know what to do. But when I did see it, it blew me away. So Very cool. 
Yeah. All right. Well, my number three is a musical, believe it or not, uh, and it is Hello, Dolly, starring Walter Matthau and Barbara Streisand. Um, and, you know, I don't know that it's the greatest film in the world. I'm sure there are people who don't like it. I, I, you know, haven't. it's not like a favorite, favorite movie of mine. But I will say for being a musical and starring Barbara Streisand, I do like the film. I find it rather enjoyable. I love the theme song, of course. And um, I don't know. It's just one of those movies that I saw once and I was like, oh, that was pretty good. And since I have limited movies to choose from anyway <laughs> – it made it onto my list, so that's my number three. Oh no, that's cool. Uh, yeah, I only saw this for the first time last year. Oh, cool! It just came on TV. Missed the first five ten minutes, but uh, put it on. Um, I'm not always a huge fan of musicals, as you know, but this I really enjoyed it. To be honest, yeah, yeah, it's uh, a lot good of fun. music. It just it looked it looked gorgeous, and I do like Barbara Streisand in some films, especially from that that period of time. And uh, right. it was yeah, it was lots of fun. And it was directed by Gene Kelly, by the way. The great, yes, the yes, great Gene yeah. Kelly directed it, so that's kind of cool. Yeah, uh, so you know that's that's going to be good as well. But yeah, but it didn't make my list, but uh, it was thoroughly enjoyable when I did see it. Good, good. Okay, my number three is another western, and it is Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, directed by George Roy Hill from a script written by William Goldman, and he he won the Academy Award for Best Original Screenplay for it. And it's uh, Butch Cassidy played by Paul Newman, and the Sundance Kid Robert Redford and Catherine Ross is also in it. They work so well together. Because it's Robert Redford and Paul Newman who are always brilliant together, and it's got some amazing scenery. Uh, it's it's quite funny in places. It's got it's got a few overlong sequences though with you know backrack songs and bikes and things, which always felt went on a bit too long and should have been cut down a bit. But a superb ending the way it ends. Very good choice. I like it. All right. Well, my number two, uh, kind of fitting considering that uh, we were just talking about Roger Moore earlier, and it is On Her Majesty's Secret Service. And it is the film that was made before Roger Moore took over as uh, James Bond, and it was starring George Lazenby, which I think is a big part of the reason why it's one of the most forgotten James Bond films. I don't mean that as a slight on George Lazenby. I actually liked uh, Lazenby as James Bond. He's not the best, but he's not as bad as some people give him credit for. But... On Her Majesty's Secret Service is, to me, actually one of the better James Bond films. It's uh, it's between Connery and Moore. It has an interesting tone. It's definitely uh, on the darker side of things. Uh, and it is um, it's a surprisingly good film. It holds up really well. It, it inspired some sequences in Inception. Uh, it inspired sort of some sequences in Spectre, the last James Bond movie. It's got a really great ending that I won't spoil for anybody who hasn't seen it yet, but it really does something different with James Bond. And um, I think had it had a... a somewhat more charismatic actor in the in the role of James Bond it would be a film that is maybe remembered better but uh, I do really love it so that's my number two yeah it didn't make my list but yeah you've great points to be honest because it is it's not as bad as it sort of some people make out right it's definitely always kind of lumped together in like the lower end of the James Bond films and it's and it's not it's definitely yeah. middle to higher tier James Bond in my opinion because it's probably one of the the few Bond films that actually builds bit more of the character of James Bond than exactly, his life. Exactly, exactly. So, and also, it was that one, the George Lazenby one, which sort of gave the whole thing about having James Bond as a code name because he does the bit where, I bet this didn't happen to the other chap. Right, like that, right, exactly. It's, uh, you're right, it's, uh, it's unfairly maligned by some people. Right, but it's a good film. Okay, an excellent choice. Uh, my number two is a French film directed by Jean-Pierre Melville, and it is Army of Shadows or L'Homme des Ombres. Uh-huh. I'm sorry for any people... You know, French-speaking people out there for me ruining the pronunciation <laughs> of that. But it's a, a superb film, and you really everybody should go check it out because it's amazing. And it deals with the French resistance and what they were doing 
during World War Two, and it's it's connected by various characters, but it's not it's not an ongoing it's not so much an ongoing story, but it's it's like about them getting to a safe house and they've got to do this, they're waiting for people. It's like various events going on. There's like an overarching kind of story going on in the background, which builds and builds, but it's so you're watching it and it gets so tense. You feel like you're there with them in some scenes, and but you just at the end of it, it's like it's a relief when it's over, but it's just a hell of a journey and just. It's it's an important film. Lots of it again. There's not much talking. Lots of it's just the acting with the eyes and the face and bits and pieces. Well, I, I have to admit that I have not seen it. I'm not even that familiar with it. I've heard of it, of course, but I didn't know much about it. So now I'm intrigued, and I'll have to check it out. All right. Well, my number one pick has already appeared on your list, and I have to say I'm a little surprised it wasn't your number one. But I'll let it slide this time. It is Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. Uh, of course, I mean, it's Redford and Newman together on screen. It really is just a movie I absolutely adore, um, not just because it's Redford and Newman, although they're terrific. I just think it has so many great moments and the jumping off the cliff and the ending and just the humor and the interplay between the two of them is so magnificent. And uh, I don't necessarily even always love Westerns, but I also don't really consider this a Western, even though... Mm, no, I know what you mean. Yeah, it's, it's got a different vibe and place for most right. of Right, yeah. but it's definitely... It was When I looked at the list of films from 1969, the minute I saw Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, it was automatically my number one. Like, I knew there wouldn't be any other movies that could even come close to touching it. So for me, it's definitely, I think, more of a favorite than it is for you, but it's uh, it's a classic. So I'm glad yeah, it was I at least just... as high as it was on your list. That makes Yeah, me I mean, I had a film be your number one. Yeah. My number one. I know exactly what it's going to be. <laughs> it is The Italian Job. Very good. Uh, which I, I absolutely love. It's just so, so much fun. You got Charlie Croker who's released, well, Michael Caine, released from prison, and he's got to do uh, a big job in Italy. Oh, so many good characters and great actors. You've got Noel Coward. Noel Coward's in it as Mr. Bridger in prison. with his, And you've got, you got Benny Hill, who, for lots of our American listeners, that's a huge thing because, for some reason, Americans, well, lots of Americans like Benny Hill, and I've never figured that out. <laughs> right. Because it's, so, yeah, it's always been an odd one for me, that. Uh, but, uh, yeah, they go off to Italy, and they've, they're going to use some minis to rob the bullion and they get the gold. And then it's amazing. One of the one of the best car chase sequences of these three minis, red, white and blue, going through the streets, under the streets and over the streets. And it's just amazing. And the ending, oh, it's brilliant. Can't go into the ending because Mike hasn't seen it, but it's brilliant. Oh, it just works so well. And it's almost always so much fun to watch. It's a family favorite. Uh, words for me because I love it so much. Well, it's hard to argue with any of that. It, like I mentioned earlier, it's a film I want to see, uh, so I'm definitely going to track it down. It, I've really been meaning to see it. Like yeah. More than a lot of them on my list, this has been one where I'm like, I really need to see this film. I yeah. always hear how great it is. So, yeah, it's uh, very, I'm gonna, it's I'm very quintessentially it English as well, especially the scenes when you see 1960s London and all that kind of thing. Right. But yeah, that's my number one, The Italian Job. Right. It's 1969. Very good. Okay, well, that will wrap up this portion of the show, and that's going to start to wrap up the show on the whole. So, Phil, why don't you tell people what they can look forward to hearing about next week. Yes, next week we'll be doing our top 10 films of 1996. So we flipped around a couple of numbers there. That's what we did because, you know, we're always thinking. That's right. And we'll be going after the ending of Eddie Murphy's Coming to America and the wonderful, lovely The Iron Giant. One of my favorites. So it should be a... Should be a fun episode. I'm really looking forward to that one. Yes, definitely. I do. Uh, Coming to America, it's not one of my favorite Eddie Murphy films, but it's always an enjoyable watch. Yeah, it's a good 80s comedy. I, I like it. But that's what we'll be doing next week. So tune in. Same bad time, same bad channel. You got it. All right. Well, on that note, then, we would like to thank you greatly for listening. As always, I'm Mike Spring. And I'm Phil Edwards. And we'll see you next week. After the ending. 
All right. Well, moving on to hop, happier topics. That's happier. It's not Easter yet. <laughs> right. They met up with another group of survivors that, who were let... Uh, drink of water. <laughs> that zombie virus, man. It makes your tongue all thick. <laughs> Tallahassee has developed a father-daughter bond with Little Rock. Hang on. My dogs are barking. And I have a C-130 flying overhead. So we're going to take that whole thing over again. Wow, is this like is this like the zombie apocalypse happening live? <laughs> right, dogs barking, planes flying overhead. <laughs> oh man! <laughs> if you don't hear from me after tonight, you know why. <laughs> <laughs> Leads them to police collapse. No, 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 no. Uh, their investigation uh, leads them to police. Oh, I can't even talk. So that's the rundown of 1969. Do you want to tell us? Do you want to go first on the top ten films of two, of the year uh, of the whatever? Yeah, <laughs> I couldn't remember what. Hold on. What are you underwater? What happened? No, song just fell. Oh. <laughs> Can I just say I really want to start a podcast now that's just called "Other Things Neil Armstrong Could Have Said When He Landed on the Moon." <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I feel like the list is endless. Yeah. Welcome to episode two hundred forty-two. Each episode is only like thirty seconds long. Yeah. We just throw out like two or three yeah. things and then we end it. Oh my god! I left the gas on. <laughs> right. <laughs> Where the hell am I? I just went to sleep. <laughs> Things Neil Armstrong should have said. Right, exactly. <laughs> That's got top ten hit written all over it. Yes. 